If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. That's where we will be looking this morning. The text is also printed for you just on the next page of your bulletins. But this morning, we will be looking at two of the four miracles in this chapter of, of one miracle after the other, looking at verses 1 through 37. If you're able to stand, I invite you to remain standing as we hear from God this morning from his word. Again, from 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And the vessels were full. She said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he called her, she stood before him and he, said, and, she, and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her, and when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. 
and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. There was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Who were the first people to sit and listen to these stories in the book of Kings? Who were the first men and women and children who gathered together to hear these stories? Now, we talk about audience all the time in church, don't we? We go through the New Testament and and we think about who are the Galatians. And when Paul's writing to the Romans, we're wondering, you know, who makes up the church? Is it made up of, of Jews or Gentiles? Or, or James writes a letter, and we're always asking, hmm, who's he writing the, his, this, this letter to? And yet, how often do we, do we not really think about that question for a book like Kings? This epic history of Israel, and, and we quickly lose sight of who are the first to have this story put in their hands? The first readers of Elijah's miracles, of Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or, or his being ushered away in, in a whirlwind, chariots of horses and fire, or Elisha's miracles that we just read. Who were the first readers to have this given to them? And we have the answer. We know the answer. It's a pretty, pretty undisputed answer. The first to read these stories were those who were in exile, those who had been taken from their land, those who were sitting under the oppressive hand of a foreign nation. In other words, the first readers of the stories we just read were people who had lost everything. They had lost their land, they had lost their country, they had lost their farms, they had lost their homes, they had lost family and friends or at least knew of people who had lost their lives to brutal violence. There is a real concern amongst all of them that they had lost God. They're confronted with their idolatry. They're confronted with the mess that they're left dealing with. There's no more temple that they can go to. There are no more sacrifices. There are no more feasts. And so maybe this belief can start to creep in that God has turned their back on them. You start to ask particular questions and you begin to pray particular prayers when you lose everything, don't you? You have confusion, you have doubt, you have despair, you lose hope. So much of Kings, right? First and Second Kings is one book split up on two scrolls because it's long. It's one book of Kings is this historical and theological explanation 
of why we are sitting in an ash heap as those in exile. Now, as Christians, we read these books quite differently. These books show us, just as it showed the original audience, our need for Christ. The issue is that if you and I were suddenly transported into the world of ancient Israel, do we think we would do any better than those who are in ancient Israel? And it takes a lot of hubris to think you would do any different. If we were in their shoes, wouldn't it just look the same? And so we're not the same, but only because of Christ. And so with great joy, we look to Jesus, who is the true and faithful Israel. We unpack the history of, these, of this people. We glean lessons and enduring truths about the fallen human condition that we can very much relate to. And this shared need of a redeemer that they were looking forward to, we look back to the promise fulfilled in Christ. And then we grow in more and more knowledge of the character of the living God. Same God here. It's the same God that's here this morning among us. We come to this ancient book to a people who are, who are suffering and struggling, and we can relate to them to some extent, not with the trauma of, of exile. And that would be intense, right? That would be extreme. And we can see examples even in our own day and age of people who are brutally taken from their homeland. But in, in another way that I think is very real and is very serious, we also come to the book of Kings as those who know what it is to be sinners and sufferers. We read passages like this as those with chronic illness and chronic pain, of, of broken marriages, of, of distant relationships with our children, as those who have lost our children, as those who are widows and who are widowers, those who long for God's kingdom to come where every tear supposedly will be wiped away and every heart will be mended and made whole. And so 2 Kings 4 gives us these pictures, these, this intrusion of, of God's redemptive and restorative work that we are also looking for even now. Now, this chapter feels a little bit different than everything we've been reading so far because everything has felt very big picture, very, I keep using the word epic because that's what it is. This is the nations of, of Israel's epic history where you have stories of kings and queens and battles and, and prophets and very public, incredible, miraculous displays. Where in 2 Kings 4, these are undoubtedly incredible miracles, but they are intimate miracles. This is Elijah ministering to individual people and families. In this chapter, there are four separate vignettes, four separate miracles, one after the other, announcing in big, bold, neon letters, the God of life-giving and life-transforming grace sees your needs, and he is here. And the last two stories that we're not looking at this morning, Elisha miraculously provides food in a time of desperate famine, but we're looking at the first two stories where we see the God who sees the profound needs of his people and he redeems them. We have a widow in crisis, and then we have this faithful, unexpected mother who then loses her son. And what we see in these two episodes is, first of all, a story of redemption, that speaks to a people in exile. And to some extent, we also are those kind of pilgrim people in exile waiting for, for the homeland we were created for. So the story of redemption and then also a story of resurrection. And at the end of the day, we are a resurrection people. That's the most fundamental story of what it means to be Christians. All right, so first of all, let's look at this story of, of redemption, this, this first little vignette of, of this desperate widow. So in verse 1, right, right from the beginning, there's no introduction. We're getting right into this story. 
The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. This is a bad situation. That's a dumb thing to say out loud, isn't it? This is a dumb, this is a bad situation. This is a dire situation. This is a desperate widow who has lost her husband, who is one of these prophets that's always in the background, right? And through Elijah's story, you have this group of the prophets or the sons of the prophets. With Elisha's ministry, he works with them more than Elijah ever did. But that's who this guy is. He was one of the prophets or, or one of the sons of the prophets, And he has died, and the family is in debt. And this widow says, there are creditors coming who are going to take my children and put them into slavery, uh, presumably to work off the debt the family is in. The husband gone, there's apparently no other way to pay off this debt. So this is as dire as it gets. And so on the one hand, we're thinking of the ancient world. Um, There is no safety net in that society. There's no filing for bankruptcy. There are no social security benefits to claim for the children. A debt was owed, and without anyone able to pay off the debt, this woman is about ready to lose her children into slavery. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if you read your Bibles, you know this shouldn't happen in Israel. If you read Deuteronomy, you know that's that's not how God set up his society, where there is something of a safety net. You cannot, in God's economy, tear a family apart in order to pay someone back money. You can't do that. No widow should expect to lose her children uh, because of debt that she is in. And so we know, on the other hand, this is still a corrupt society where everything is, is, is falling apart. Everything is broken, but this woman is desperate, and she cries out to Elisha, and she says of her husband words that I think stand out, right? She says, you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come. We're always talking about Israel in this sermon series as this place of idolatry, this place of wickedness where it seems like no one is serving the Lord. But we know that's not true. It's not everyone. Now, here is someone who feared God. Here is someone who served the Lord. But that doesn't save this family from suffering. That doesn't save this family from hardship and trial. That doesn't save this family from this creditor. And so Elisha responds to this need. What shall I do for you? Through his minister, Elisha, God sees the suffering of this woman and he responds, what shall I do for you? I think already this is a glimpse of prayer. To cry out to our God who knows and and sees our distress and he doesn't respond like, what is it this time? When we go to God in prayer, he doesn't say, "Are, are are you kidding me? You're praying to me again. This is the God that says, what can I do? Right? Jesus' response is, is better because he hears our prayer as, as a mediator. He's our, he's our intercessor who prays for us. In Hebrews 4, we are invited to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help win in a time of need. To know as a people when life has fallen apart where to go, who to cry to. So Elisha asked the woman, you know, what do you have in your home? Do you have anything? And she says, I have a jar of oil. That's not good. That's that's problematic. That's all that she has. There's one thing of value that she has in her home. She's destitute. She has nothing. And this is where God gets to work. And so Elisha says, go to your neighbors. Go borrow some Tupperware containers. 
Get as many vessels as you can get. Bring them back inside. And I want you to go shut the door. And I want you to take that little bit of oil you have and just start filling up those containers that you got from your neighbors. She has no more containers left. She says to her son, go, where, where are the other containers? The son says, that's all we got. Elijah comes in and he says, sell off all of those containers of oil to pay off your debt and you can live off the rest. Miracles here, just like everywhere else in the Bible, don't just demonstrate the power of God, which they certainly do. They also demonstrate who God is, and that's the point here. They show us what God is about, and through the ministry of Elisha especially, God is particularly revealed as the redeemer of his people. Now, redemption is one of those churchy words, and we can often think of redemption as just a synonym for saving or a synonym for rescuing, but it means ransom. It means paid for. It has a financial element to it. And that's what we see here, right? This family is in bondage. This woman's children will be taken, but this is the God who pays the price. The God who through Elisha frees the woman, liberates her, sets her free in this provision of oil. And so this is something of a picture. It's something of this real-life illustration of the human condition. She is hopeless before her creditors, and so she cries out to Elisha, and we would say we are all helpless in and of ourselves before our creditor. But what is our creditor, and what is she pointing us to? That we are all creditors to death. That's what Paul says. The wages of sin are death. Death is what sin earns. We are all in debt to the creditor of death and judgment. And with the greater creditor comes a greater redemption. In the gospel of Jesus, we aren't just asked, what do we have? No, Jesus comes and he supplies every last need, every last demand. Not oil, but his own blood. And so a people in exile, a people in bondage, need this picture of redemption that Elisha points us to, that points us to the greater redemption promised, the hope of Israel. Prophet Hosea, Prophet Hosea is writing to the same kinds of people, the people who are in exile, the people who are wondering, what in the world is going on? How am I here? And Hosea has this incredible story of, of Israel, right, as, as the, the unfaithful bride to the faithful Lord. So what are they going to do as the unfaithful ones? How will they ever be restored? In Hosea 13, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. That's the realm of the dead. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? That's the hope of Israel that finds its end. It finds its fullness in Jesus. So in this picture, seven verses in this picture, Seven verses of a hopeless widow, we have this picture of the God who comes to redeem his people. Peter reminds us of our redemption. We're not ransomed through perishable things like silver and gold or oil, but through the precious blood of Jesus. It's a picture of redemption. The next picture, which is a far longer story, is a picture of resurrection. Elisha continues his life-giving ministry throughout Israel Let's turn to that second picture of resurrection. Elisha goes by the town of Shunem. This is, I think this is such an incredible story. Uh, the picture here, Elisha is a prophet. You can imagine he's traveling all up and down Israel, doing whatever God is calling him to do. But every time he passes Shunem, he, he has this, this, this rich lady, this, this benefactor, this well-to-do woman who, who apparently loves Elisha, loves his ministry. So every time he passes by, she says, come on inside and I'm going to feed you. And then at some point she tells her husband, we need to build an addition. 
You know, let's build the mother-in-law suite so every time Elisha comes by, we, he has a place to stay for, with, with us. And that's exactly what happens. And here's what's, what's crazy is that out of all of the words that, that this story omits, it includes the furniture of this room. Right, So they build the room on top of the house, and then everything described here, a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Now, why in the world does our author mention those furnishings? And I think there's a really incredible reason why those are mentioned. It's because every piece of furniture mentioned in Elisha's room are furnishings in the temple down in Jerusalem. The word for chair, same word as throne. The word for table is there in the temple where the showbread would sit. This is all of, and I have no problem saying this, this is all of the parts of the Bible that we think are boring. Right, all of the furnishings of the temple, and we're just like, get to the plot. We lost the plot. We're, we're stuck here with all the furnishings. But this is where it gets kind of interesting. The word for lamp here is menorah, right? So it's all, all of the lamps in the, in the temple. Well, now we have this lamp in Elisha's room. And so the point here, I think, is this is a little temple. Remember, Jerusalem still has the temple, but we're in Israel right now. We're not in Judah. We're in, the, we're in Israel. We're, we're surrounded by pseudo-idol-worshipping temples. And so the idea here is God with Elisha is present in Israel in this tiny little room. This tiny room is answering the question, where can God be found? Which is always the question the temple answers. Where can God be found? And so this woman is declaring through her actions, when Elisha is present... God is present in this room with his prophet in this little room in Shunem. Forget about the fancy temples of Baal. Forget about Bethel and all of its golden calves. God is present with Elisha in this random room in this random town of Shunem. One time Elisha is in town and he acknowledges this hospitality is over the top and so he sends his servant Gehazi. We'll keep meeting Gehazi. He's the bumbling sidekick of Elisha who eventually gets himself in too much trouble. All right, he's the bumbling sidekick, so he sends him out, and he says, you know, what can we do for the Shunammite woman? At this point, Elisha has some connections. The king isn't totally wicked, and so he's got some relationships with the king in Israel, and he says, you know, can I, can, can I get you some help from the king or from a commander of the army? And the woman says, no, I dwell in my hometown, which is a way of saying I'm content. I don't need anything. I'm a simple person. And so Elisha thinks there has to be something we can do for her, and Gehazi mentions, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. This woman has everything that she needs. She is content, and yet this is the idea here, that they locate the one place where she does hurt, the one place that she does have need. Elisha says, in one year, you will hold a son, and listen to her cry, right? Her cry is not, that's amazing. Her, her cry is, don't tease me. Don't mislead your servant. I told you I was content. And I think we're supposed to believe that she is content because she's resigned to the fact she's never going to have a son. And so that, that, that brutal scar tissue is, is awakened by Elisha saying, no, you're going to have a son. And then a year she has a son. Years pass between verses 17 and 18. And we read that the son goes out to his father during the harvest. And he says, my head, my head, some kind of headache. Something's happening to the little boy. The father orders a son to be carried to his mother, and I know the prose is very fast, but just think of how tender and tragic this is. The boy sits on his mother's lap all morning, and then he dies in her arms. And the woman takes over the story. Where does she put the boy's body? Not on his bed, not on her bed. She takes him up to Elisha's bed. She calls for a servant and a donkey to go and get Elisha. And her husband says, it's not the day we go to church. 
And she responds in Hebrew the word shalom, which means a whole bunch of things, peace. Here it probably means sure, <laughs> whatever. She finds Elisha at Mount Carmel. Elisha sees her and he says, oh no, something's wrong. So he sends Gehazi and Gehazi says, what's wrong with you? Is it your husband? Is it your child? And it's the same word, shalom. Sure. She brushes him aside because she's dead set on grabbing hold of Elisha. She is on a mission. She reaches Elisha, who she keeps calling the man of God. She clings to his feet. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you not to raise my hopes? I don't think there is any greater faith on display in the entire Bible. There are equal displays of faith, probably, but there is no greater faith than this Shunammite widow. Let me tell you why. Uh, even throughout the Gospels, there is this assumption that Jesus can heal the sickest of the sick, but he can't heal the dead. So think of Jairus' daughter. Remember the story of Jairus' daughter? We, we heard it preached on just last month. He's the synagogue leader. He's got this little girl that's, that's sick on the verge of death, and so Jairus sends servants to get Jesus to come heal her. And then by the time Jesus gets to Jairus' house, the servants say, don't bother the teacher, she's gone. And Jesus says, pfft. She's not dead, she's sleeping. Little girl arise. Another example, Mary and Martha, the good friends of Jesus, they send word to him that their brother, his friend Lazarus, is sick. Jesus finally gets to Bethany where they live, and, and the sisters, or Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, he's gonna rise again. And Martha rolls her eyes and says, I oh, know, I believe in the resurrection too. And Jesus says, you don't understand, I am the resurrection. And the point here is that Jesus is not just Lord over the living, but he is also Lord over the dead. He is Lord over all things. He can literally reach into death and pull someone out of it. Now let's go back to the Shunammite woman. Her son is dead, and yet she is not done believing that the man of God, Elisha, can do something. When her son dies in her arms, she doesn't move on. Maybe that's what her husband does. Is, is he probably grieving in his own way and just says, why bother the prophet? It's not even the Sabbath. But instead, she puts the boy in Elisha's bed. She runs off on a beeline to Elisha, and she says, I didn't even ask you for a son. But then she also says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave your side. Verbatim, what Elisha said to Elijah when Elijah kept trying to leave Elisha behind. I will not leave your side. Elisha sends Gehazi to run ahead and place Elisha's staff on the, the boy, but the woman doesn't leave Elisha's side. Remember, there's no temple. There are no faithful priests. There are no faithful kings. There are no Bible studies. There are no church services. And so if this woman wants to cling to God, she has to cling to God's man, who is Elisha. When Jesus talks about faith, he tells crazy stories. When Jesus talks about faith, he says, you know, there's a friend who goes and wakes up his friend and says, I got a visitor in town. I need some loaves of bread. And the friend says, are you kidding me? You're waking me up for that. And Jesus says, if you're going to give that guy the bread, it's not because he's your friend. If he's your friend, you're going to say, shut up and call me in the morning. You give him the bread because he's persistent. He didn't stop banging on your door. And he tells a crazier story. He says, there's this widow and an unjust judge. The unjust judge wants nothing to do with the widow, but the widow drives the judge so crazy that he finally gives the widow what she wants. That's how Jesus tells the story of faith. That's the Shunammite woman. 
That's the faith that's on display with her. Gehazi does what he's told, and in verse 31, there's no sound. There's no response in the boy. Elisha comes in. He finds the boy dead, and then he prays, and then he does what, of course, sounds strange to all of us, right? Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. But just like Jesus, the dead does not contaminate the living, but Elisha is filled with so much life-giving power. He is so holy that he contaminates the dead and brings the dead back to life. The boy's body grows warm, sneezes seven times, life is full, and he opens his eyes. These stories of Elisha are familiar, aren't they? Even if you've never read 2 Kings 4, there is a familiarity to these stories because this is the pattern in which Jesus will walk. Again, we don't read this story, but at the end of 2 Kings 4, there are five loaves of bread and a hundred men, and they're trying to figure out the problem. How are we going to feed a hundred men? And Elisha multiplies the loaves and feeds everybody. And Jesus says, you think that's good? Give me five loaves and two fish and 5,000 men, not including the women and children. Jesus steps into the pattern of Elisha in Luke 7 when he comes upon a little nothing town called Nain, which happens to be really close to Shunem, and he walks in on a funeral procession and says, hey, what's going on here? And they say, that's the son, the only son of a widow, and she has no one. And we're told that Jesus' heart went out to her, and he says, don't cry. Don't cry, because she got a glimpse to quote the Lord of the Rings, the only time I'll ever quote the Lord of the Rings, because it's the greatest line in it, because everything sad is coming untrue. That's why, that's why I want you to stop crying. And with just his words, the young man gets up and the people are filled with awe. A great prophet has appeared among us, the people say. God has come to help his people. And so what I want you to see is that Elisha is the mold and then Jesus fills the mold. Elisha keeps, he's the man of God, right? But Jesus, the God man, fills the mold and by his glory and greatness, he blows the mold up. God has not come just to help his people. He's come to save his people. Both Elijah and Elisha raise the dead sons of widows. Jesus takes up the mantle and raises the son of another widow. And he raises his Jairus' daughter. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And all of these examples from Elijah to Elisha to Jesus are all about the hope of God's kingdom where death is no more. You see, the story of Elisha isn't, I know it's sad, you need your land back. I know you want life as you knew it, but that's not the point. You need the God who will overcome death with life. You need the God who will not just raise the dead for the raised just to die again. You need the God who will enter death through Jesus and come out the other side. You need the one who will raise the dead, who will raise you to everlasting glory. Elisha is on a mission bringing the life-giving power of God to bear in a place of death to a people suffering under the weight of sin, under the weight of this world, and he brings redemption and resurrection. To us, a people who suffer under the weight of our own sins and absorb the pain of death in our lives, Elisha anticipates and shows us the greater, more glorious one to come. And oh, this woman, what an example for us. She is in desperate need and her husband gets in her way and she says, shalom. <laughs> Gehazi says, how can I help you? And she says, shalom. And then she throws herself at the feet of Elisha. 
Think of all the places we look to for help. And she sets that example for us to cast it aside in order to cast ourselves on Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, the author says, let us therefore run to him. Isn't that what she did? She runs to the man of God, and friends, we run to the God-man. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The one who comes to redeem his people from the slavery of sin and idols that demand every last ounce of us, he has come to set us free, to save us from death itself. God has come to help his people, but even better, he's come to save us. Let's pray. Lord, we are here this morning because you are the God that has come to help your people. You are the God who has come, who sees our need. I think that's the biggest reminder of this passage, especially for those who are in the throes of, of trials, who are in the throes of, of tribulations in this world. For those who are deep in the valley of the shadow of death, that you are the God who sees. You are the God who comes with a kingdom that promises redemption and restoration in life. Lord, we give you thanks for this, this ancient word of, of a prophet who sets this pattern of life-giving work even in the land of the dead. And Lord, that story is retold every Sunday, every day in our lives as we look to the work that you have done in Christ. Jesus, the better prophet, not just the man of God, but the God-man who's come to redeem his people. Holy Spirit, would you take this word in order to shape us into those who long for your better kingdom? Or would you do that work in our midst? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.